Thank you. It's that time in the service when we come to the Word of God and we take a passage and we look at it and try and understand what it is that God might be saying to us through it by His Spirit. And it's uh, my privilege to lead you in that today. And so I'll take you to 2 Samuel 24, the end of uh, the book, of this particular book, 2 Samuel. We've been following and tracing the life of David, the man after God's own heart. And we're coming close to the end of this series. And uh, this is the end of this particular book, the very last words of the book. And so we'll pick it up at verse 10. And uh, don't be surprised if there's some aspects of this passage that uh, challenge you. And it's certainly been challenging for me to think through some of these things over these last few weeks. So why don't you stand with me if you are able and willing. I'll be reading from the uh, ESV, the English Standard Version, and you can read with whatever text uh, you have, beginning, or whatever version you have, beginning verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, The three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let's fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it's enough. Now, stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please Let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded. And when Arauna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arauna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arauna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the lord that the plague may be averted from the people. 
been around has said to David, let, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, no, no. But I will buy it for buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. This is the word of the Lord, and we are thankful for it. Let's pray together, and you can be seated. Or, Lord, we are, we're grateful to you for this, your word, and may you, may you guide my words, may you speak your truth uh, into this place that we might understand uh, how it is you'd have us be and live and respond to you with the worship and the lives that we offer you. And in Jesus' name we pray. So I don't know about you, but I'm a, I'm a counter. Let's say I'm a person who likes to count things. I count minutes, and hours, and days. I count money, of course. <laughs> we all do. I count, I count tasks. Sometimes I count people. Uh, yeah, over these last uh, number of weeks, I've been in a lot of different places and cities for work, and we had a little bit of vacation where we traveled around a bit. And I, I got curious about... Uh, the relative population of some of the places I've been, because it's like, like, how big are these places? How many people live here? And so I asked my friend Siri, who gave me some um, information. Uh, it's interesting, uh, if you go down the coast of, you know, our continent, on the west coast here, you'll find that the, the cities, like the major cities, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, you take Los Angeles and set it aside, all the other cities are pretty much the same number of people within the city limits. You know, between about 600 and 800,000 people. Uh, you know, San Francisco, for instance, we spent a few days there. Uh, they have about 800,000 people uh, within the city limits. Now they have 8 million people in the surrounding area, uh, but not that many in the city itself. Uh, not that much more than Vancouver. And the same with Seattle and Portland. And uh, I, I find that interesting. Although, I'm not sure why I really care. <laughs> I mean, I think perhaps part of it is I want to believe somehow that the city that I call home, the city that I live in, matters in the world, right? And uh, it seems to me that size, you know, if it's a bigger city, seems to mean more somehow. I mean, it's one of the reasons we take census. What's the plural of census? Sensei? I don't know, censuses. <laughs> we do that in this country. We have, uh, I think the next one is due in uh, a couple of years, 2021, I believe. And uh, we're going to count up all the people in our country. Well, why do we do this? Well, there's lots of reasons. We do this in order to uh, <laughs> properly tax each other. We, <laughs> we do this and so that we can uh, appoint uh, proper size uh, legislatures in some sort of proportional manner, be it our legislative seats across the country. We, we count so that we can plan health care and uh, 
and this is what we do. Uh, it's probably not a bad idea in a lot of ways, although when David went to take a census of the people of Israel, it proved to be catastrophic. And uh, I had to struggle with that as I was studying this text in order to share it with you here today. It says in verse 10 that David's heart, remember, remember we understand David as being that man after God's own heart, right? He's the man whose, whose heart was aligned with the heart of God. And it says here in verse 10 that his heart struck him, uh, uh, beat him, assaulted him, it struck him after he had taken a census, after he had counted the people. And David said to the Lord, I, I've sinned, I've been foolish. I've done a terrible thing here. Which is a little hard to understand when you consider, going back to the beginning of the chapter, verse 1, it says that uh, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and, and it was the Lord that incited David against them, saying, go and count. Go and number the people of Israel. Well, this is just the first of several issues that we have with this passage. David said, I've been a fool. And so the Lord sent his prophet, a man named Gad. You could think of him as Gad from God. <laughs> Funny name. <laughs> uh, so Gad came from the Lord. And it's interesting. It seems that that uh, David's prayer of apology, his, his sense of his foolishness, this was received by the Lord. But there was still consequence. There was still a price to be paid. It wasn't like God said, no, no, no big deal. I told you to count. Don't worry about it. No, he didn't say that. He said, no, uh, this, is, this is the real thing, and there are consequences. I'm going give to you, give you a choice here. Three... Um, you have the choice because you've, you've repented. You can choose between these three options. None of them very appealing. The first one, three years of famine. Well, that would be absolutely devastating. Three years of famine. I mean, untold numbers of men and women and children would die. It's not like there was a, a, a you could just, you know, buy more food from China or something like that. In those days, it, was, it would have been absolutely devastating. Three months uh, running <laughs> from their enemies. Well, David knew enough about the animosity that existed between the nation of Israel and Judah and the neighboring nations to know that that was a bad plan. In fact, he had just counted the people. And one of the things that uh, happens when you count the people is you get some sense of your relative strength in comparison to those around you, and this wasn't going to end well. David says, uh, no, I don't want to be in a position where we put ourselves at peril at the hands of other men. Door number three, three days of pestilence at the hands of God. And David says, I would rather be in the hands of the Lord who is merciful than in the hands of man. And so he chooses door number three. And the Lord speaks to his angel, the angel of the Lord, who stands up and raises his hand in the 
pestilence begins in the north and Dan and sweeps down to Beersheba, 70,000 people die, 70,000 men. Probably another 70,000 or more women and, of course, children. It's a terrible, terrible number. And as the plague begins to flow down the nation, to flow south and begins to approach the city of Jerusalem, David says to the Lord, please, he says, please, I'm the one that has sinned here. I'm the one who has acted foolishly. Please avert your hand. Put, it, put the weight on me and my family. And the Lord says to the angel, says, it's enough. Stops the hand. So the angel lowers his hand and the, the plague is averted just before coming into Jerusalem, the capital city. And Gad from God comes back to David and says, it's time for you to worship. Sends him to the threshing floor of Arauna. Do you remember that place? We talked about it a few weeks ago. This is the place where David danced before the Lord with all his might. A threshing floor, great flat surface, suitable for the threshing wheat, where they would throw the wheat in the air and the wind would come through and blow the chaff away. And this is a suitable place for worship. It's a place that had already been established as a worship place. And so David intends as king on behalf of the people to build an altar there. He's led to this by a word from the Lord. And so he comes to Arauna, the owner of the land, and makes a proposition. Arauna says, no, 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 no. He says, I, I, I'm very pleased to offer this to you, to just, I'll give you the land. I'll, in fact, I'll give you the wood for the, uh, the, for the fires and the, the, the fuel for the altar. And uh, David says, no, no, no. No, I will pay you out of my pocket for this because I refused to offer worship to the Lord that cost me nothing. Refused to offer worship that does not cost me. You could say, and this will be how I intend to focus this, this message, worship doesn't count unless it's costly. Worship doesn't count. One, two, three, four. Unless it's costly. And boy, did it cost David. 50 shekels. Fair bit of money. Uh, it's, there's, it's hard to know exactly how, uh, what, what that kind of money was and how it would relate to our money today. But I did read somewhere that, that uh, a shekel could support uh, a, a family. You know, probably not in the hog, but uh, might, might support a family for a couple of months. So not an inconsiderable amount of money. On the other hand, he's the king. But he pays for it. 50 shekels. 70,000 men. I got to tell you, I got issues with this passage. Not for the first time when Pastor Wes assigned it to me. I read it and said, really? 
70,000 people. How, by any measure, is this considered the plague averted? I don't even, sorry, I, I got to say it. I, I don't even want to think about what it means like on the ground for 70,000 men plus women and children to, be, to die in three days by pestilence, like insects and things. How is this plague averted? How is it, as it says in verse 1, that God would incite him to such a thing? And what's the problem with counting anyway? I do it all the time. What was the big deal here? It's a census. I mean, that's how we govern nations these days. And then, I mean, maybe more subtly, but, but perhaps a, a little helpful. Like, what's the point of this passage where it's situated here at the very end of the book? I mean, we've already had David's last words. Go back to beginning of chapter three. There's, it says it right there, the heading. I mean, I know that's not part of the original but it's there the last words of david you know so he's he, a beautiful hymn a beautiful prayer and, and then you know the description kind of wraps it up with uh, you know like the credits at the end of the movie <laughs> you know have a list of david's mighty men it's all good we're done wrap it up get out of here sweep up the popcorn no we need more we need a story like this. Well, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to satisfy you entirely. Uh, but I have some thoughts <laughs> about all these questions. You know, 70,000 people, it's a lot of people. Let's, let's, I mean, it could have been 150, 200,000 all told. Of course, these people weren't innocent, right? I mean, it says at the beginning of the chapter that the anger of the Lord was against the people, not just David, but all the people. And I'm not sure all the reasons for that, uh, various forms of unfaithfulness, I suppose. Uh, but that's kind of convicting for, for me, for us. You see, I, I think one of the problems we have in reading this is we're so comfortable with God's grace. You know, I mean, it's a wonderful thing, but we're, we, we forget the fact, and you read the Bible, not just the Old Testament, you read the New Testament, you, you understand we are accountable to, to a sovereign and holy God. Right? Like we are, we, by our sin, are deserving of his judgment. A price must be paid. Now, a price has been paid. That's the beautiful thing. But we forget that, right? Like we just get comfortable in the grace of God and we forget the fact of, of our accountability to him. So, I mean, this is harsh, no question. But there is a sense in these days before the cross, before Jesus, that a price needed to be paid in order to satisfy 
the sin of the people. And, uh, you know, just, just to be clear here, the numbers David counted were considerably higher than this. He counted 800,000 men in uh, Israel and 500,000 in Judah. So this was, on some level, a mercy. Why did God incite him to this act if it was to be sinful? Well, actually, before I talk about that, let's talk about the nature of the act itself, this, this counting thing. Well, why did people count, particularly in, in, these, uh, in these days? Why did they number the nation? Well, actually, not much. The reasons aren't that much different that we take a, for why we take census today. And they did it in order to manage taxation. They did it in order to understand how many people they could send to battle, conscription. They did it in order at some times to uh, be able to force the labor of the people in order to achieve the purposes that the kingdom or the country had in mind. Not actually that much different than some of our reasons today. Uh, they did it in order to measure the strength and power of the nation relative to those around, as we've already said. And all of these reasons, it seems, really have to do with quantifying the power and capacity of the, the people. And that actually sounds like a wise thing to do for any old nation. But this wasn't just any old nation. This was Israel. Uh, the people of God. The people who are held to a different kind of accountability. The people who serve a sovereign God who promised to provide everything that was needed. All the strength necessary. All the direction. All the power. This is the God of Gideon's army. Some of you remember the story of Gideon who gathered 10,000 people to go to war and God says, no, 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 no. That's not how we're going to do it. Choose these 300 men. Not thousands. You're going up against tens of thousands. So, but, but you don't need to take 300 because I want to make absolutely beyond any shadow of a doubt the fact that this victory has come because I offered it to you. And not because you were so great, because you were so powerful, because your numbers were so many, because you were so awesome. No, it's because I, the Lord, am so awesome. And everything we've been singing about this morning. So there's that. Then there's this thing about David inciting, or, or the Lord inciting David. Uh, if you go to 1 Chronicles 21, you can see a, a description of the exact same set of events. And you might actually prefer that description. I kind of do. Because in that reading of the exact same events, verse 1 says it was Satan that incited David to count. No mention of the Lord. This one says it's the Lord. That one says it's Satan. Could it have been both? Um, you know, it reminds me of, of Job. Do you know that? I mean, some of you know the story where, where Satan comes to the Lord and says, says, I want to do this, I want to do that. And, and, and uh, because 
you know, you can't trust your people. And God says, well, I got this one guy. <laughs> and so it's like this weird thing where, where the Lord and Satan are having this conversation and the Lord holds up Job and says, here, try him. <laughs> you know, and maybe something similar is happening here, except this time <laughs> David fails. test of some kind, a test of tremendous consequence. And then why is this, this story here in this place in the book? And, and I can't give full answers to that, but I, I think we kind of understand uh, sometimes when you read a book or see a movie or something like that, and there'll be, well, a, an epilogue, you know, something that comes after the rap. And those things are usually really, really significant because they're placed strategically in order to focus our attention on something that really, really matters. Right? And in this case, it, this, this narrative epilogue placed at the end, after the rap, suggests the importance of worship. The worship of a sovereign God a worship that costs. A worship doesn't, that doesn't count. Literally. One, two, three. That, that worship that doesn't count unless it's costly. In uh, Luke 24, verse 18, Jesus uh, tells a story and he describes a, a you know, the fact that a very rich man or a king or, or, or like a, a builder will not go ahead with a project, will not go ahead and build something until they've counted the cost, right? And he makes the comparison of that to discipleship. Like you don't follow Jesus until you've counted the cost. But here's the thing, it will cost you everything. The context of Jesus' word is, Jesus' words there are, are about carrying a cross. You don't take up your cross without counting the cost. It's interesting that Jesus would talk about that in advance of his own carrying of the cross. Jesus meant what he was saying. He took up his own, he paid the ultimate price. He, his Worship, you could say, cost him everything. And by his death, he made the grace possible by which you and I stand. And here today, we sit, stand, uh, we gather at a kind of threshing floor. And our lives, our Worship is being evaluated, you know, tossed up into the wind to see what blows away. And in a moment, in a place like this, I want to start to counting. Are you like me? <laughs> I, I want to say to the Lord, Lord, you can trust me. I mean, Look how faithful I've been to you. 
Look how many years I've served you. One, two, three, and ten, twenty. Look how many dollars I've put in the plate. Look how, count all the hours I've spent in prayer with you. Look how faithful I've been. I, I, I can give you a big number, Lord. And it's none of it enough, is it? Can't pray enough. Can't show up here enough. Can't worship enough. We've come to the place, it seems, where we treat worship like a commodity, like, like, like something that you shop for. You know, something you can spend, something that has consumer value. Like, like Other times I think we treat worship like it's a, a power move. You know, that, that if we can put enough of it together, then we can buy what we want from God or, or like God is a store or, or, or we can force God to do what we think we need him to do because he can't help but, you know, we even use this word, petition. You know, like, like as if we put enough names together, we get enough people on the prayer list, we get enough people spending enough hours, together, then God's gonna have to do what we ask him to. It's like we're trying to overpower God. And, and he laughs. I mean, don't get me wrong. He loves it when we worship. He loves it when we're here together. He loves it when we pray. This is a beautiful thing, but it's not the thing we do to win his favor. It's the thing that we do to give him glory. And to give him gratitude. And we could look at other people in other places. I did some looking around uh, this week to, to see what's going on out there in the world. You know, I mean, because it's pretty safe for us. I mean, we complain sometimes about the restrictions that we experience here in Canada, uh, you know, with respect to religious freedom. And, and there's probably a reason to be concerned about some of that, but you can't see this very well. But how about this guy? His name is Nazar Navar Goltapa. Uh, you can't see it, but he's here. And he is currently serving 10 years in imprisonment in Tehran. Why? Because he started a church in his house. Just gathered some people together to do this. You know, there's a whole bunch of people here. You know, goes on and on. People for who their worship has been costly. And I think I'm paying a price when I have to show up here at 8.30 on Sunday morning to set up for worship. You know. It's pathetic. Thing is, 10 years in jail for Jesus 
God's got to be impressed by that. that is not enough to satisfy the glory and holiness we sang a lot did you notice how many times we use the word holy when we sang today means his perfection his complete absolute otherness (laughs) and we can't we can't reach that standard no matter how much we give him no matter how many dollars hours no matter how strong we are. Hey, look at our church. We're really healthy. Look at that other church. They're not, or that other faith. They're not any good. Look at us. You know, like, God. You can't, you can't bribe God. You can't pay him off. Get him to go away. There's a lot of harsh stuff in this. There's a lot of harsh stuff in the Bible. There's a lot of harsh stuff that goes on in life, even among believers in Christ. It's it's a lot of harsh stuff, and so much of it is about our fear and our pride and our, and, and because we're fearful and prideful, how we try to manipulate a sovereign and holy God in order to get him to do and be what we feel like we need him to do and be. And it's just, it's never going to be enough. But thank the Lord. We have received grace. In the name and person of Jesus Christ, who paid that price so that, so that we don't have to pay a price, so that we can offer worship freely, and I just don't, I don't just mean by that sort of openly, but freely in the sense of at no charge. There's only, in the end, you know, one census that's going to count. The Bible calls it the Lamb's Book of Life. <laughs> and, uh, The only thing that's going to count in the end is whether our names are written there. And uh, in Christ, by his efforts, by his grace, it can be. Lord, we're sorry uh, for just getting into this place where we think that all the things that we do before you are things we're doing for you as if uh, they're prices we're paying uh, in order to buy your service. And, you know, we we want you to look at how great we are relative to others, you know, like how, how good we are, how faithful we are in... And we just confess in this moment, we know that none of it is going to count that way. But that's not what this is, Lord. Like we thank you for this harsh reminder of, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for, we, we recognize there's always a price to be paid for sin. And, and 
And, I mean, we saw an example of, of, of a time in history when, when the people paid that price directly. And, and we're so grateful now that, that that price has been paid for us in Jesus. And we rest in that, Lord. We rest in that. We, and, and we need your help now by your spirit to, 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 that we can recognize and learn and, and grow into the awareness that, that, that the things that we do in your presence are not about trying to pay you off or to, to um, pay the price that, that our sin demands. Because the, the, the things that we do in your presence are there to give you glory, to offer our thanks, our gratitude, our appreciation, Lord, to to learn of you and to, to know the beauty of a God who, who while he was holy, was, was willing to make a way by which we could be forgiven. So help us with that, Lord, we, because we struggle. And even now, Lord, as we come before your table, this, uh, this weekly reminder of what you've done for us in Jesus, the, the bread and the cup. And even as we pray right now, Lord, I'll invite those who are going to help me with this to come forward. Lord, this reminder is that the worship we offer, the price has already been paid. And so this, in, in, in the body of our Lord Jesus, broken for us, and the blood of our Lord Jesus spilled for us. This is the price that was paid for our sin, our unfaithfulness. Not anything we could have done or manufactured. And we, we just want to say we're thankful. And by our practice of, of this, Lord, we are being obedient to you. As you asked us to do this, I think you knew that we had bad memories. Lord, you asked us to do this so that we could remember and so that we could worship. Simply remembering and giving you our gratitude. Offering you our praise. So we, we, are, we are grateful. This, is, this, is, uh, this sacrifice is the reason by which we stand and worship before you here in this place today. We thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name.